Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 13 through 16. I would like to read through chapter 2 verse 3. So if you please stand as you find your place there, we'll read 1 Peter 1, 13 through 2, 3. And then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time in the Word. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how timely... We always find it to be. We look forward to seeing what you will do through us and in us with it. We pray that your spirit will have his way in us this morning. That he would work in our lives by helping us to understand the scriptures and to apply it rightly. Father, would you please minimize distractions in the room and in our minds and hearts. And use your word to cause us to grow in affection for Jesus. To desire that your gospel would be proclaimed in our lives. With our lives and with our voices for your glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. Earlier this year our vice president Mike Pence. Shared that he has a personal policy and has had it for many years that he does not 
spend time alone with a woman who is not his wife. He will not take a car ride alone with another woman. He'll not share a meal alone with another woman. And of course, many of us in Christian circles, this did not, we did not find this strange at all. We think it's a wise thing. Many of us have the same standard. The world acted as if he had said the most insulting thing in the world. Like he had insulted all women everywhere. This was the most misogynistic thing they could think of. He was, he was vilified in the media. He was vilified on social media that he would imply that women are inherently tempting to men. And this, this highlighted for me and for many others the, the, the break in the moral thinking of believers and unbelievers. Just how, how we're in different planets when it comes to the way that we think about moral things. Shelby and I had company on Friday night, and this kind of thing came up again as we, we heard a story from, from one of our guests about an unbelieving coworker whose teenage daughter came to her and said to her mother, I think I want to save myself for marriage. And that unbelieving mother said to the unbelieving teenager, are you, are you sure you don't just want to try it? And as, as flabbergasted as we were that a mother would encourage her chaste daughter to experiment sexually, so also that unbelieving mother was flabbergasted that her daughter would want to wait. The, the, the moral convictions that seem so normal to us, for the most part, are bizarre to the, to the unbelieving world around us. And they're not just bizarre, but they, they draw upon us the scorn of the world. As the conversation progressed on Friday night over our dinner table, another of our guests shared that it is harder now to be a witness in the workplace than it was when he was a younger man because of how strange people think you are, not just for holding to the gospel, but because of how, how believers hold to moral norms. For elect exiles, as Peter calls us, chosen strangers of the gospel scattering, those two things go together. Our embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ carries with it necessarily a desire to live a, a lifestyle that coincides with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have been set apart from the world. We're, we are to be different from the world. We, we preach a message of a God who saves sinners from the power and consequence of sin by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, everything about an elect exile, everything about what an elect exile believes would cause you to an ex- expect an elect exile to live differently than the world around them. And living differently than the world around us is a major component of the testing of our faith that Peter addresses in this letter. The, the, the pressure that the world brings upon us in the form of ill treatment or what we might call persecution is a result not just of our preaching the message of the gospel, but is also a result of our living a godly life in the world. L- listen to 1 Peter 4.4. 4. Peter says, they are surprised. He's talking about the world. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They treat you poorly because you do not join them in their ungodly lifestyle. 
Now the world does want us to be quiet about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they also want us to stop living our godly lives because both of those things are hard on their seared consciences. And so they persecute us. And that's why Peter teaches in this letter, meet the testing of your faith by setting your hope on the grace that is being brought to you and entrusting your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. Moral Godly conduct is is a major theme of this letter, and our shift toward godly conduct is marked by the first word in verse 13 that we've just read, the word therefore. Therefore signals that because of everything that we've seen in verses 1 through 12, now we're going to begin talking about something else. Verse, verse, I'm sorry, the word therefore means... Because you've been chosen by God to be strangers in this world, strangers of this gospel scattering, because He's caused you to be born again to a living hope, because you you are being kept by God's power through faith for salvation, because you have an inheritance that's undefiled, unfading, and and unimperishable that's being kept for you in heaven, because of the outcome of your genuine faith is salvation on the day of Jesus Christ. Because of all of that stuff, because of all of that, live in this particular way. That's what the word therefore means. It connects what's come before it with what comes after it. In a sense, Peter has been giving us reasons in verses 1 through 12 to do what he's going to tell us to do in verses 13 and following. So this this section that we've just read, 113 through 23, deals with the conduct or manner of living that is consistent with the station of an elect exile. And he's going to tell us over these, these next few messages, be hopeful, be holy, be reverent, be loving, be longing, because that is a lifestyle that is becoming of an elect exile. This is very similar to how, how Paul writes a number of his letters. Because of what God has done and who you are, because of what God has done, live in, live in this way. This is the life that is becoming of who you are in Christ. And so this morning we will cover the first two elements of conduct that is becoming of an elect exile. And the first of those is that we should be hopeful. Be hopeful. It's the first element of, of conduct becoming of an elect exile. It shouldn't come as a, as a shock to us after we've just come through verses 1 through 12. But look at verse 13 with me again. It reads, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the, 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 the main command there starts in the middle of the verse. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Now, I, I find it helpful to, to, to identify this truth that may come as somewhat of a paradigm shift to some of us. It is a matter of obedience to be hopeful. It's a matter of obedience to be hopeful. He is commanding hope here in verse 13. Now, to, to be hopeful, if we just use common everyday language, to be hopeful is to live with an attitude that says, everything is going to be all right. You, you, you live in a way that that people feel a vibe coming off of you that says 
everything's going to be all right. Now, when I think of that, one person that comes to mind for me who gives off that vibe all the time, it's Pastor John. He's next door right now in, in adult Sunday school. It's hard to fret around Pastor John. I have, have the, the pleasure of spending a lot of time with him. But whenever I'm around Pastor John, I just feel like everything's going to be okay. See, he just puts that vibe off. All, all elect exiles should give off that vibe, should, should live that way. But, but we should do it the way that John, Pastor John does it. it not because we're, we're ignoring trouble, not because we're telling ourselves lies, but because of where our hope is founded. Our confidence is grounded in something precious. We believe, we really believe that everything is going to be all right because grace is being brought to us at the, com- at the second coming of Christ. He says here, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, those, those previous 12 verses have filled this main clause with meaning for us. And I won't rehash everything in those previous verses, but the fullness of our salvation takes place when Jesus returns. Do you, do you remember from verse 10, that phrase, the to you grace? He, he rephrases it just slightly here in verse 13. He calls it the being brought to you grace. It's got kind of a future-looking aspect to it. The being brought to you grace. We, we hear the word grace so much. We talk about it, sing about it, we read it so much that we may have a tendency to just gloss over it. And I would like for us to just make a pact with one another. Let's not do that. Let's do the hard work of not becoming dull to the word grace. Think about with me for a second what it means for grace to be brought to us on judgment day. In what sense will grace be brought to us on Judgment Day? It will be brought to us in the sense that Jesus himself is coming and his atoning death will finally and officially declare our sin debt paid in full. And his searing righteousness will finally and officially be credited to our account so that we are declared righteous. That's the sense in which grace is being brought to us on the day that Christ returns. The word grace means that judgment day, which should go terribly for us. Do you understand this? Judgment day should go terribly for all of us because we've earned that over and over. But the word grace means that judgment day is going to go very well for us. Set your hope fully on that, Peter is saying. Put your confidence in that. God's wrath satisfied by Christ and God's favor earned by Christ on our behalf. Hope completely in that. Now, the question is, How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the preceding clause tells us, tells us exactly how to set our hope on the grace being brought to us. The preceding clauses say, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That's how you set your hope on the grace being brought to you. That calls for a little bit of exposition, so let's, let's get into it, okay? We set our hope by, first of all, preparing our minds for action. Is there anyone 
is there anyone who would admit to using the, the King James Version this morning? Is there a King James in the house? We almost had a hand. No, no King James. That's lamentable. Now, the, um, the, the ESV, if you've got the ESV, there is a note at the bottom that has what the King James has underlying those words, preparing our minds for action. It's more literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And there, there are good reasons to prefer that language. Because when we don't use that language, we miss Peter's likely reference to the Exodus. Okay? Because we, we find that phrase, gird up your loins, in Exodus. In Exodus 12, 11, where the Israelites are, are receiving instruction for how to take the Passover just prior to their leaving Egypt. And not just for that first Passover, but they're being told how to observe the Passover forever afterwards. All right? And, and here's the instruction they get. Now, I'm going to read the ESV, okay? In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, again, the ESV eliminates that kind of weird phrase, girding your loins, but other translations, some of the older ones, and the, the KJV render it this way. Here's how you shall eat it with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet, etc. The question, of course, is what, what does it mean to gird your loins? Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to, to run with a long robe on, but it, it, it can't be easy. I've never tried. I've, wear, I've, I've worn pants all my life. The, 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 uh, the Israelites didn't wear pants. The, back in the day, all, they, they, they just wore long robes, right? Well, to gird your loins was to grab the bottom of these robes and tuck them into your belt so that you could be mobile and prepared to do hard work, okay? It's, you, you, you're able to run, you're able to be agile, you, you can do hard work. That's important for the Israelites as they're getting ready to leave Egypt. Why? Because when God gives the word go, they've got to go right now and they've got to carry everything they own. They're preparing themselves to do hard work. And so when they take the Passover, every time afterwards, they're commemorating that, all right? Now, why is it important for us to see that in First Peter? Because I, I think Peter is intentionally calling our mind back there. You know, there are ways in Greek to say... Prepare your minds for action without reaching back and grabbing a Hebrew figure of speech. He could have said this a different way, but he uses a Hebrew figure of speech. Gird up the loins of your mind. Peter's wanting us to think of this as a second exodus, this thing of being an elect exile. We, like the ancient Israelites, we've come out of slavery. We are a, we are like sojourners in a land that doesn't belong to us. And as elect exiles, we must be prepared to do hard work. Now, the hard work that he's calling us to is hard work in the realm of our thinking. Remember that the main clause here, the main imperative, is to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us but he is saying that doing that requires disciplined thinking. It requires hard mental work. 
setting our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us is not something that just happens automatically. And if you'll think with me about this, you will most likely agree. When you allow your mind to go wherever it wants to go, when you're faced with difficult trials, where does your mind go on that spectrum from despair to hope? When you're faced with a, with a difficult trial and you're not disciplined in your thinking, do you naturally go to hope in future grace? Or do you naturally, does your mind gravitate toward your current circumstances, and the terror that they represent. Hoping in the grace that is being brought to us requires hard work of the mental variety. When I find myself despairing because of this or that, when I catch myself doing that, I have to intentionally, intentionally, stop my mind from going to that place and I have to intentionally think instead about what I know to be true about my glorious future and what that glorious future says about my difficult present. Basically, what, what, what I have to do is preach to myself things like 1 Peter 1 verses 1 through 13. or 1 through 12, I'm sorry. I, I cannot, I cannot set my hope fully on the grace being brought to me if my mind is not intentionally engaged in that hard work. Or, to, to use Peter's phrase, if, if I have not girded up the loins of my mind, if, not, if I'm not intentionally, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, leaving behind the thinking of my former life in Egypt, my former hopeless, despairing thinking. When I find myself dwelling on difficult circumstances, thinking like, oh man, there's, there's no way out of this, or this is the worst, or even something as terrible as this, I've been abandoned, I must make the conscious decision to say, no, that is not true, and I reject it, and to replace it instead with things like, I am chosen by God, I have been set apart by the Holy Spirit, and I've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, Grace and peace are mine. Those are words that come directly from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. I need to think those things intentionally. Or I can think things like, God has caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or I have waiting for me an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in heaven. And what that means is no circumstance can take that from me. Or... I can't see Jesus. I can only see with my eyes these, these things going around me. I've never seen Jesus, but by His grace, I love Him. And by the fruit of faith, the faith that He has given me, I will receive the salvation of my soul. These are all things that come from 1 Peter 1. I must intentionally think those things instead of the natural things that I think in my moments of trial. I set my hope on the grace that is being brought to me by preparing my mind for action. Hard mental work. Intentional thought life. Girding up the loins of my mind. And, second, the next, the next clause, the beginning of the verse, by being sober-minded. So I do it by preparing my mind for action and by being sober-minded. Some translations, you may have a translation that says by being self-controlled. 
you lose a little bit of the metaphor that Peter's using when you don't use the word sober. Just, just very simply, he says here, be sober. Now, he doesn't mean merely refrain from getting drunk. Certainly the scriptures teach us that drunkenness is a sin. So, so if you're in the habit of becoming intoxicated, you, you need to repent of that. But here he is indicating sobriety in a metaphorical sense. What happens when you get drunk? When you get drunk literally, what happens? Well, your, your senses become dulled. It's, it's almost like an, an anesthetic. But when you're sober, literally, your mind is clear. And your, your senses are sensitized. To be drunk on a spiritual level is to be dulled to the things of the Lord. Now, if you, if you look back at your even recent past, some of this might sound familiar to you. This dullness to the Lord. Here's what it can be like. The Word of God is tasteless to you. Prayer is unappealing to you. Worship is lifeless. The gospel is not invigorating. Now that, that, that is what it is like to be dulled or anesthetized to the things of the Lord. And what is it that anesthetizes us to the things of the Lord? Well, a couple of things that we can identify from the scriptures that would anesthetize us to the things of the, the Lord are love for the world and living for the flesh or indulging the flesh. These two things will anesthetize us to the things of the Lord. Listen to 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15, the apostle says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's, there's an antithetical relationship between the love of the world and the love of God. They, they counteract, counteract one another. Being enamored with the things of the world will inevitably and necessarily cause a cooling of our affections toward God. The opposite is true as well. And a growth in our affections for God will cause a, 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 a cooling of our affections for the world. Likewise, listen to Galatians 5 verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. So if, if we are all about indulging the flesh, this will cause us to be dulled to the influence of the Spirit. The, the opposite is true as well. This indulging of the flesh, listen, doesn't just mean I'm, I'm getting hammered all the time and I'm eating everything inside. It doesn't just mean that. Indulgence of the flesh can be just being so busy that you forget there is anything beyond the physical. And I think that may be a, a huge temptation for people in in, in our kind of a culture as Christians. Some of us have filled our lives with so much activity that we expend ourselves going from one thing to the next that we don't have any time to ponder the things of the Lord. Is it any wonder then that we become anesthetized to spiritual things? When we, when we love the things of the world, when we're preoccupied with the flesh, 
we will inevitably be lulled into spiritual drowsiness. And our focus will be earthly desires and not the coming of Jesus Christ. And it then becomes virtually impossible, impossible to set our hope fully on the grace that's being brought to us. And so Peter commands us to be sober. Don't be anesthetized. Be sober. And what he means is to resist the anesthetizing effect of the world and the flesh. How do we do that? Well, we use these means, these God-given means that we talk about all the time. The word and prayer in meaningful relationships with the church. So being sober. Being sober coupled with this intentional hard work, this girding up the loins of our mind, these two things together. This is how we set our hope fully on the grace that is being brought to us. But one thing that we need to, we need to make sure that we understand is that, is that Peter is talking to a community here and not to one individual. I, I, I wonder if, if now, now that we've, we've considered these things, does it make sense to you if you have had trouble being hopeful of late? Does it make sense to you why? Have you, have you had one of these two tools missing from your toolbox? Girding up the loins of your mind, this intentional hard work in the realm of your thinking. Or have, have you been missing this, this spiritual sobriety? Or have, have, have both been missing? You know, this is very practical stuff that Peter is giving us. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's very practical. And it is impossible to do these things alone. Impossible. We need each other. Last week, my week was split. It's almost right in the middle. I had melancholy days and hopeful days. I like the word melancholy because I love the Puritans and they use the word melancholy. It's, it's their word for downcast. I had downcast, downcast days. I had hopeful days. Now, what, what was the difference between my, my, Two, the two halves of my week. The first half was, was melancholy. The second, hopeful. Listen, I read the Bible every day. I prayed every day. What was the difference between the two halves of, of my week? Well, the first half of my week, I, I was virtually alone. The second half of my week, I, had, I met with five different people to have meaningful conversations about the things of the Lord. And those conversations about the things of the Lord were used by the Holy Spirit to whip up affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and to buoy my heart with hope. You know what's interesting is that in some of those five conversations, I was primarily giving counsel. But the Holy Spirit used my own voice to remind me of things that I already knew. In none of those five conversations did I hear anything that I didn't already know. I knew, I knew everything that I heard in those five conversations. Didn't hear anything new. Some of those conversations, the Holy Spirit used my own voice to remind me of things and to tell me things that I needed to hear. The other conversations, it was the person across the table who was saying the things that I needed to hear. In every one of the conversations, the Lord used another person in my presence Pull me out of out of despair and to help me to hope fully in the grace being brought to me. How important is a hopeful manner of life to an elect exile? How important is this? 
It's essential. It's essential for two reasons. The, the first is that we ourselves can't survive without it. We cannot survive without being hopeful because without a firm foundation for our hope, we will crumble under the weight of the testing of our faith. We will crumble. We, we, will, not, we will not pass the testing of our faith. We need hope ourselves in order to make it through this life and continue believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, hope is essential to the message of an elect exile. You know, we preach a message of hope, right? We preach message of hope for salvation from sin unto life in Jesus Christ. And when we live lives then of despair, while preaching a message of hope, we are walking contradictions. There's a massive disconnect that exists in the life of a person who proclaims hope in Christ but does not exhibit hope in his or her life. A hopeless life lived by a professing believer defames the gospel, actually leads people away from Christ. And so it's essential for us as elect exiles to be hope-filled people. Hope-filled people. So the first element of conduct becoming of an elect exile is to be hopeful, and it's a matter of obedience. The second element is to be holy, to be holy. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, he calls us obedient children. He says, as obedient children. Whose children are we? What is he talking about? He's not talking about our, our earthly parents here. He means we are God's children. There's a relationship that exists between us and God, a familial relationship that would have been unthinkable prior to the cross of Jesus Christ. We were formerly enemies of God. Jesus goes so far as to call us children of the devil in John 8. But now in Christ, we have been transferred from one kingdom to another, from one family to another, so that, so that he himself, Jesus himself, is our brother, and God is our father, and we have been begotten by God unto obedience. God's grace in us is, is not only exhibited in his forgiveness of our sin, but also in his creation of us. In Christ unto good works, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.10 says that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created beforehand so that we would walk in them. So every bit of the life of a believer is by grace. Our forgiveness is grace. Our obedience is, is grace. So as, as, we're, as we're moving into this section of 1 Peter where we're called to do things, where we, we, we find commands, we ought not think that, oh, we're leaving the grace portion of First Peter. We enjoyed grace back in verses 1 through 12, but now it's work time. No, not at all. It, it, it's all grace. His grace is at work in us to produce the godly fruit of righteousness that he finds pleasing. And we find in verses 14 through 16 that the righteousness that he desires is comprised of two different things, turning away from one manner of life and toward another. And that's 
quite common in the teaching of the apostles as they, as they are emulating what they've read in the Old Testament. We, we often refer to this two-pronged approach of God, toward godliness as putting off and putting on. We find this kind of language in Ephesians 4 where, where Paul teaches, put, put off the old self or the old manner of life and put on the new self, the new manner of life. This is exactly what Peter's doing here. So he teaches, first of all, don't be conformed to the passions of your old ignorance. Don't, don't be like your old self. The word ignorance refers back to our, our pre-Christian past. Before Christ, we didn't understand the truth. We didn't see the light. Our minds were fallen. As a result, we, there were certain passions that ruled our lives. And, and Peter refers to these passions in, in, in different ways back, or, or looking forward to chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He uses words like sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries, flood of debauchery. Th- those passions were characteristic of our, our lives prior to Christ. We were enslaved to them. And, and yet Peter indicates here in chapter 1, as do the other apostles elsewhere in the New Testament, that those passions, they still pull on our hearts because we're, we're not completely sanctified. That, that's why he gives us a command here to resist conformity to them, that they constantly pull on us. But, but the implication is that those who believe in Christ can resist. Isn't that good news? We were formerly enslaved to these things. Paul says in Ephesians 2, former slaves to these things. He writes similar words in Romans chapter 6. We were slaves to these things, but because of the death, resurrection, and Jesus Christ, of which we are partakers because of of faith, we can resist these passions. We must resist these passions. And it is an active work of the believer to do so. We, We work at this by grace. It's very, very similar to that hard work of thinking that he calls us to in verse 13. We, we, we can't be passive in these things. We can't be passive in our thinking. We can't be passive in regard to the passions that are pulling on us. So if, if we have sexual passions that do not coincide with godliness, we must actively, intentionally resist those. If we have a compulsion towards sinful anger, we must actively, intentionally resist that. We must take an assessment of these things that we, that, we, that we want, these things that we love. We must take those to the Scriptures and see what is it in these things that are ungodly and whatever is ungodly, they, they have to go. I must resist them, but put them to death by the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8. He says, do not be conformed to your old passions. Put those things away. That's, that's the first part. But secondly, be conformed to the character of God. He says, as he called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, before we talk about holiness, look at how Peter refers to God. He calls God, he who called you. He who called you. We, we, we put a, a theological phrase on this effectual calling, which means God unfailingly brings his people to himself. He unfailingly brings his people to himself. 
And we know P- Peter has this in mind because in, in 2.9, if you skip down to 2.9, he says, you are a chosen race. God has chosen a people for himself. How do those people become his people? So he chooses them, but then what happens? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a, sorry, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He chooses a people, and then he calls them to himself. And that calling is effectual. It does not fail. So we, we, we make a huge mistake when we conceive of the calling of God as a simple invitation. We, we've, we've talked about this before. The, 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 the gospel of God is a command. And the calling of God to the elect is just like the calling of Jesus to Lazarus in John 11. It brings a dead person to life. Jesus did not invite Lazarus out of the tomb. He did not invite Lazarus to become alive. But he commanded Lazarus to come forth and and listen. It was the power of the command that accomplished it. Lazarus was graciously acted upon. He was dead and then he was alive by the command of Jesus. And this is why Jesus was able to say in John 6.37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. In other words, don't you worry. Everyone that belongs to me, they're going to come to me. Why is that? Because I'm going to call them from death to life. If you look back at your own, your own experience as an unbeliever, I really think that you will see this borne out. I, I, I think of my, my brother Kyle sitting right here. His testimony, I, I just love it. I, I, I think... I think of, of, of others of you, I know your testimonies. Your hearts, my heart, so hopelessly obstinate, even after hearing the gospel numerous times, there was nothing inherent in you that would incline you to follow Christ until he said, come forth now, be alive. He did that with Kyle. He did that with Kyle. Kyle knew the gospel backwards and forwards. And he obstinately refused because he was dead in his trespasses and sins, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, until, until Christ acted upon his dead heart and made him come to life. He acts upon dead sinners and brings them to life. And listen, the sequence of this, of this thing is, is crucial. His effectual grace calls us from death to life before the call to righteous living. Isn't that great news? We are not called to be holy in our dead selves. But all holiness, this this holy life that we're called to live here in, in, in 1 Peter... This flows from the one who has called us from darkness to his marvelous light. 
He has called us from death to life, and then that holiness flows from Him. Now, that, that is so, such good news. Now, this, this call to be holy is a call to be separate from ourselves, it's to separate ourselves from the evil desires of the world and to live in a way that, that pleases God. Verse 16 calls our minds back to the Old Testament, right? God is, is holy in that He's set apart from the world. He's unlike the world. He is, he is completely different. He is other than in His, his character, His being in conduct. He's completely untainted by sin and darkness and evil. Numerous times in the book of Leviticus, we hear these words quoted by Peter, I am holy, so you will be holy. Now listen, that is a command, but it's also a gospel truth. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, they will inevitably be holy because God is holy. What God is saying there is, I'm set apart, so you will be set apart. This, this doesn't just... This doesn't just happen in Leviticus. We don't have to wait until we get to the Leviticus to get this idea that, that God's holiness obligates His creation to be holiness. It, it goes back to creation itself. The very first chapter of the Bible tells us that we were created in God's image. It's, it's God's design for man to be His image bearer, His representative in the world, to reflect His glory to the world. So man, by virtue of His creation is called to be holy like God. And Peter is saying here in 1 Peter that the believer, by virtue of his recreation, is called to be holy. It's called to be set apart, consecrated to God. We exist to reflect the glory of, of God's character. Now, this is a call to moral goodness, and it's a hallmark of this letter. It, 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 it comes back to it over and over. This book is filled with calls to live good lives, morally good lives. I, I want to I give you some pieces of this from 1 Peter, okay? If you're, if you're taking notes, you can write these references down. 2.12. 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. 2.15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 2.20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to what? Live to righteousness, that we might live righteous lives. 3.6, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good. 1 Peter 3.10 and 11, 3.10 and 11, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. 3.13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 3.17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 4.19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter wants us to understand that part of this testing of our faith is Will we live a holy life while the pressure of the world is upon us because of our association with Jesus Christ? 
Now, why is a holy life conduct becoming of an elect exile? Why is it conduct becoming of an elect exile? Well, some of the verses that I've just pointed out to you answer that question. Holiness in us glorifies God. When we keep our conduct among the among unbelievers honorable, and, and, and I hear P- Peter's quoting Jesus from Matthew 5. He says, they see our good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, why would that be? Why would unbelievers see our good works and glorify God when Jesus comes back? Why would they do that? Because on that final day, on judgment day, when Jesus reveals the secrets of men, when everyone sees the holy conduct of those who trusted in Jesus compared to the filthy rags of the so-called good deeds of those who did not trust in Jesus, it will be obvious to all creation that the true holiness of the believer is because of faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is faith in Christ that has brought about true holiness. You see, our, our holiness confirms the truth of the gospel. We preach, we preach a gospel of a God who through Jesus Christ saves and sanctifies. It saves us and it conforms us into the image of Jesus. And so holiness in the believer proves that God really is who we say he is and he really does what we say he does. And so on the last day, there will be no one to praise but God himself for that holiness. So holiness is essential to the life of a believer because it confirms what we say about God. The second reason that that holiness is essential for the life of an elect exile is because it is still God's desire to have a holy people for himself that has not changed from the very beginning. Nothing happened at the cross to change God's desire that he would have a people holy to himself. We find Peter telling us this in 1 Peter 2, 5. 2.5 reads this way. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's using that Old Testament language of a holy people, holy unto God offering acceptable sacrifices to God. He's using that language of the New Testament church. He's saying this is what God wants. It's what He wants right now. And so we, we, we are to live holy lives because we love Him. And we want to please Him with our lives. So here the, the Apostle has, has said to us that as elect exiles, we are to be hopeful We are to be holy. Now consider this. When we do those two things while suffering persecution, we walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. I'm concluding with this. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. You can write those verses down. I'm going to read them to you now. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen, in hope of future glory, Jesus resisted sin and endured the persecution and suffering of the cross. Let us follow Him in these things for the glory of the Father. Let's pray together. Father, some of us have have come here this morning extremely weary because of circumstances brought upon us as a result of our being elect exiles. And we have found it to be just as, as hard to be hopeful as to be holy. Lord, you've been so kind to us by saving us, by revealing yourself to us in the scriptures and in Christ, by setting us apart for yourself, by shedding his blood, by applying it to our sins. Would you please continue in this kindness by taking this passage and working it into our minds and hearts? by helping us to to carry all that we've learned in verses 1 through 12, to carry these with us and to prepare our minds for action, to do that hard work of the mental variety and to be spiritually sober so that we can set our minds fully on the hope being brought to us. And Father, would would you help us to be so enamored and taken with your holiness that by your spirit we would be conformed to the image of your Christ with great delight. Eager for our lives to reflect your character so that the gospel that we proclaim with our mouths would be shown to be true. Father, please give us an eternal perspective on the things that we see. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.